let's get this started then. Okay. Oh, me? Yeah. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome back to the show. Woo! Um, I think we learned a very important lesson with last week's episode. Do you know what that lesson is? <laughs> that Andy can't remember anything? No, that we don't talk about active cases mm, yes. <laughs> while they're happening. <laughs> yes. Yes, because I had to record the drop-in, but... Because it was like, what, 12 hours after we finished recording? They had like a big, which was bound to happen. But uh, yeah, so. (laughs) I saw that on the news. I was like, ah, man, come on. I know. What can you do? See, that's why you stick to murderers from 200 years ago. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) But it gives us something I can talk about it again when they release more of the information. Very true. Hopefully they will. They figure they will. Probably in a... I don't know, a few weeks to a month, probably by the time they get through all the forensics. Right. Because even though they're dead, they still need to make sure that they've got the right people by How many ballistics. Other? Oh, okay. Well, like they, for the two, for the tourists. Got it. They're pretty sure, but I think they're trying to link ballistics and everything too. I was like, how many 18, 19 year old white males were missing in Northern Manitoba? They're not sure they have the right ones. No, they know they have the right bodies. They're trying to link the guns to all of the murders. Got it. Crossing their T's and dotting their I's. I suppose you've got to do stuff like that. Yeah. You can't just sit in a podcast studio and pass judgment. Well, I think that's happened in the past. And what's happened is you get people who uh, get off free. and Right. You know. Not naming names, but Nancy Grace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Other news is that we are recording in Andy's podcast studio. Yes, my basement bedroom. There it is. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully uh, it's not too echoey. It's pretty good. Should be okay. It sounds yeah. good with the acoustic tiles and yeah, that jazz. The, the bed with the giant bedding. and That helps. Yeah. So. The one lone baby sock sitting on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were down here last night, or Dan and Liz were down here, was down here last night because both kids were up. At 2 and 3 a.m. Finally went to sleep sometime after 4. But... I won't tell you what time I went to bed last I night. I know. <laughs> you. Well. I love them. They're cute. <laughs> you keep telling yourself that. Yeah. <laughs> They're adorable. They just don't like to sleep. They have bad dreams. And in this world, you can't really tell them that the boogeyman doesn't exist. Because right. <laughs> they might get shot going to Walmart back to school shopping. Who knows? Very true. Just sad state that we live in. True. Um, but on that note, maybe we should try to tell some funniest stories. Yes. Although I don't know how funny mine is going to be. Mine's pretty interesting, I think. Okay. And we can also say what we just did. We we just spent yes. uh, a lovely little bit of time. The fastest six minutes of my life. I know. <laughs> I'm going to leave that on the table. <laughs> Not gonna that what she said that one up, uh, but yeah, we had an interview on local TV for the podcast festival, mm-hmm. which when this comes out, will be the day after the festival. Yes, but we don't know when we're gonna get our festival recording, so yeah, we're gonna give you this can one and then hopefully the live one if it turns out well in the future. Yeah, but we got to see the best artist in Ottawa. Yes, Snickers the dog. 
She was spectacularly talented. Okay, first, it was, Snickers was a girl. Oh, sorry. So there's some ingrained bias on your part. <laughs> the name of Snickers, it could go either way. <laughs> True, it's like Jamie, if you will. <laughs> or for some reason, Dana. But I lean Dana towards... That's a girl's name. Yeah. We had to follow Snickers. It was very hard. Yeah. But we did our best, and uh, hopefully we'll put the links online shortly. Yeah. Well, technically, we followed the guy who does artwork out of NASA photos. Right. Yes. But uh, Snickers was more adorable than yes. that guy was, so... Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm sure he's very talented. Yes. But Snickers was much... But Snickers had an underbite and a snaggle tooth, so... I know. <laughs> he was a bulldog. She, Andy. She, she was a bulldog. She was a bulldog. She was a bulldog. <laughs> so, yes. Um, my story is kind of longish, though, so maybe we should... To them. Yes. Okay. But let's start with yours because you went second last week. I okay. Went first last week. Uh, I had to email myself line. Because oh, we're using my computer. Which is fine because mine is kind of short. So first I have to do a correction as I told you. Mm-hmm. Um, my new former co-worker pointed out one of us and I think it might have been me said that Viola Desmond was the first woman outside the queen on our money. Well we were wrong. Uh, the 10. There was a 10 that was released for the Canada's 150th. That had four faces on it, and it had Agnes McPhail, who was the first woman elected to Parliament as part of that quartet. Got it. So it also had the first um, First Nations Indigenous person on our money yeah. as well. So, in a real blink and you miss it move yeah. from the mint, though. So, well, I don't think it was supposed. To, I don't think it was supposed to be overshadowed, but I think they came out with the ten, the ten with Viola Desmond right after, and then mm-hmm. they changed like the profile. So, Which still wigs me out. I yeah. I do not like that. And I think it just really overshadowed. And right. I don't think there was a whole lot of those 10s. Like, I don't, I only remember having getting a couple of them because the other 10 was in circulation for so long. Yeah. So many of those were printed. Like, I think I'm just getting my first uh, Viola Desmond 10 today as well. Yeah, I sp- spotted one the other day in my yeah. wallet too. Yeah. I don't really carry a lot of cash on me, so that's also <laughs> probably why. So my tutoring money is running out. I'm down to the tens. I know. <laughs> so I think that's also a case of just no, not too many people carry cash money with them anymore. Right. So it's hard to remember those like blank and you miss it pastors. Yeah, which probably they probably made a butt ton of them. But again, the Armpire Hospital used to have their ATM used to give ten dollar bills, okay. which was great because. You need four loonies to um, get out, oh. or two toonies. Like, it's $4 parking, right. regardless of how long you are there. So it was great when they gave tens, because then you were only getting, because you had to feed it in a machine, it would spit out mm. loonies, 10 right. loonies. The last time I was there, it only gave out 20s. Do you know how heavy, yeah. like, 16 bucks in loonies is? You put that in a sock, and you could really dent someone's I know! I <laughs> know! doesn't even give it toonies, this machine. It's like, well, if you're going to start putting out 20s, you better start giving out toonies. Yeah. Because that's a pain in the butt. But funny enough, this week's story is partially inspired by the same coworker. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So shout out to Andrew and his fiance. Uh, The other inspiration for this article uh, is uh, is an article that I read that was linked to Unlaney Gossip. Like She does like the In Other News, so she links to other sites. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a story of a Texas... Wedding Crashing Woman. I think I saw this very briefly. So unlike the movie, that, by the way, doesn't age well. Oh, no? Mm, I don't think so. I saw it not that long ago, and I was like, I don't know if some parts of this age well. I'll have to go back and rewatch. It's still kind of funny, but there's some parts just like, 
cringeworthy. Yeah, very cringeworthy. Um, so she does not crash weddings to get a little satisfaction action. Okay. Like our uh, characters in the movie. She is stealing wedding cards containing cash and gift cards. <sighs> that is genius and yet terrible at the same time. I know. I was like, so she has hit up at least three weddings that we know of and walked away with a mitt full of cards. She mingles and wait until, waits until the table is unattended and not being watched by anybody, and then swipes the cards and leaves. As I said, is both bold and kind of smart. Yeah. Like, it's it's like a bold move. Right. But it's kind of smart, because unless she steals a card that is dead obvious, like from the parents or Uncle Bill, who's going to tell you about, like, the great gift he bought you. Yeah. Or who's how much money know? that you might not realize for a while, because she doesn't steal, I don't think she steals a ton of them. She doesn't steal all of them. She just grabs like a met fall of them and then okay. leaves. So you might take you a couple of days before you realize like aunt Betty's card is missing and she's not the type of person who wouldn't give you a gift. And then okay. you reach out and then you're like, oh. but they have caught this person on surveillance. Yeah. I think Benia. I saw a surveillance picture of her and she's not dressed for a wedding or at least not how I would expect my guests to dress for a wedding. So I got to wonder a, what type of weddings was she crashing? Like, were they happening at the dog track? And uh, B, maybe it's just because my family is untrusting, but or didn't want to make it obvious, but we'd always put out, like, a wrapped box with, like, a hole cut in the top for people to put their cards in. Yes, that's common. Or the wedding well, like the yeah. wishing well. Yeah. So she's either hitting up, uh, she's not dealing gifts, she's just stealing cards, cards because they're easier to hide. Right. But are people just throwing cards onto tables now? I don't know. And also, so after you realize you've been hit by the wedding version of Swiper the Fox from Dora the Explorer, <laughs> uh, it might take you a few days to also nail down the amount. Because then you got to go out to your guests and be like, hey, this is my spreadsheet. Oh. Did you send me a, did you give us a gift or a gift card? And if yes, and it's not on this list, for how much? So like right now, the cops haven't really nailed down how much she's stolen. Right. So is it a felony below or above 5,000 or is it just a misdemeanor below 5,000? See, I get super awkward talking about money. So I would just probably A, never report it. But also B, if someone called me and said, how much did you give me? I would bump it up by at least 50 to $100 to make myself <laughs> look better. <laughs> so it's just me. <laughs> that's sort of the genius part of this scheme, right? Like, right. It just gets a little bit harder to track. Yeah. So as opposed to some sort of like bank heist. So this woman is somewhat genius, I think. So that sort of, I don't know why I fell down this rabbit hole after reading that. But then I thought about my friends getting married and this is the season of weddings. So yep. there are just some of the weird wedding traditions or different wedding traditions, because I'm sure some of our wedding traditions to people in other cultures would seem bizarre, like putting your head up the dress to pull the garter off the poor bride's leg as then you like throw it to a group of unmarried men and then if you're like following the whole tradition then the poor woman who catches the bouquet has to get that garter put on her by nope. whoever catches it that is just too much chance too many variables there so I had that happen to me when I was like a teenager nope <laughs> and then so I'm saying like I'm like 13 14 I think I was probably 13 or even maybe a little bit younger. Ugh. And so this drunk groomsman is putting on the garter on my leg and he was like, okay. And then that was weird, but fine. Cause he was like polite about it. 
Okay. He was pretty drunk. As polite as you can be. Well, you know, slipping up the- a 13-year-old's dress. I was wearing pants. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I would have just done this if I was wearing a dress, but I was wearing jeans because it was like a reception and it was okay. very casual. I had dressed up for the actual wedding. Um, and then the worst part, so that wasn't traumatic. I was in the bathroom after and I had a drunk bridesmaid yelling at me that I was trying to steal her man. Oh my God. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it bonkers what our parents allowed to happen to us? <laughs> I, I, I think can my you, mom is probably going to be like, whose wedding was this that this like, happened to you? Can you imagine like 20 years from now, Liz or Victoria telling the story to a friend? <laughs> like, oh my God. You'd be hopping in the Wayback Machine with one of Dan's guns looking for both those people. Yeah. Like the things that, because uh, I remember just being like, I don't want to do this. But it's like, oh, you got to do it. And I was like, Ugh. <laughs> This is so awkward, especially with some like person in their probably 20s screaming at me that I'm trying to steal her man. I'm like, I am 13 years old, lady. So um, let's get into some strange things that people do around the world. So France, toilet breath. Ew. France is known for its lovely food, but according to an article by Kara Bynes in smooth.com, this country has one of the weirdest and grossest wedding traditions ever. On the day of a French wedding, the guests fill a toilet bowl with all the leftovers, which were once deemed delicious, and mix them with alcohol and anything else they desire, and then the couple is obliged to eat it. Ew. Uh, it's supposed to be in order to build up strength for the taxing wedding night that is ahead of them. I'm sorry, you get like half a bite into that and you're tapping out for the rest of the month. Like, I don't... No. Ugh. Scotland. Blackening of the bride. Oh, this feels dangerous. So in the land of the Vikings, friends and family. So I'm reading directly from the travel.com article. I basically cut pasted their notes because they're pretty funny. So shout out to the travel.com. <laughs> We're not going to get nailed for plagiarism like some other podcasts. Yes. Um, the friends and family of the bride show their love for the future bride by tying her up and covering her in every gross thing they can find. This includes anything that you can imagine that you find in your pantry, such as flour, sauces, minced meat, fish, etc., you name it. After bathing her in smelliness, she is then taken for a night out with her friends. <laughs> and the belief is that if she can handle that, she can handle marriage and any of the humiliation she will face while wed. Oh my god. I know, your face. I was like, humiliation? You're marrying the wrong guy. <laughs> Just putting that out there, ladies. <laughs> Do better. Choose better for yourselves. You think you're going to be humiliated enough that you need to go through this to buck up your threshold of what's actually humiliating? Yeah. You need to look at this whole thing. Yeah. You need to spend some time being single, learning about yourself, building up your self-esteem, and then get into a relationship. Yeah. Because the biggest thing, like, humiliating you should have to go through is like, ah, oh, I bled on the sheets. Mm. Which... Really not that humiliating, but we all feel like it is. Right. So in India, marrying a tree. So India has a bunch of different wedding traditions, but this one is that women that are born when Mars and Saturn are both under the seventh house in astrology are cursed. Oh no. And it is believed that these women will cause their husbands to pass away at a young age. They believe that the women must marry a tree prior to marrying their husbands, and that can resolve this issue. 
Because the tree would die instead? Yes. So the tree would be the first husband. So it would get the curse. And the second human husband would be uncursed. I think we need to reevaluate that in light of the current climate situation on our planet. I think we need more trees and less men. (laughs) I think less humans in general. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Sure. But yes, obviously not all. These, These are just, you know, countries that these happen in. It doesn't happen everywhere. So please don't at me. Uh, China, shooting the bride. One of the traditions and wedding traditions is shooting the bride with arrows. These arrows do not have arrow heads. This harmless tradition is where the groom shoots three arrows at the bride. After targeting, he picks up the arrows and breaks them in half. This is said to symbolize their love for each other is forever. It's a really high stakes game of Nerf gun, if you ask me. The other uh, one that I want to talk about from China is rat's tail. Do you remember the rat's tail? Like the 80s bomb haircut? Yes. So Kidding, it was not a good look. Oh, it was not a good look. Why anyone would pick the most unattractive part of an animal and choose that name for their fashion look and think it's a good look? (laughs) According to an article in The Wedded Wonderland, there's an extreme Chinese wedding tradition, not seen as often as a couple of years ago, but it consists of the bride chopping off all her hair, leaving just a rat's tail hairdo. Ew. So it's not even the groom. It's the bride. Like, all these traditions have, like, a origin, so um, I'm wondering what the origin was on that. <laughs> the logic behind this there it is. is that one of the main things men notice in women is their hair, and by cutting it all off is considered to be a sign of cleanliness and beauty. I have short hair, but I can't imagine being like, yo, sweetie, I'm just going to get a rat's tail, and if you still think I'm beautiful, then we're going to get wedded. I don't know. Yeah, it sounds counterproductive. Like, if they think the hair is the source of beauty, why take it all away? Like, to prove, for the guy to prove how much he wants to marry you? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess if all those, like, young teenagers are throwing themselves at, like, the new kids on the block with those rat tails. It's... Oh, I know. And I was a huge new kids on the block fan. Because I was of that age. <laughs> I'm a little bit older than you, all right? I was raised listening to oldies music, so it never even crossed my threshold. And then I became 11 and heard Even Flow by Pearl Jam and discovered what music should sound like. <laughs> but I gotta say, I saw um, New Kids on the Block a number of years ago when I was in like the height of my depression. Uh-huh. And it was the most, it was probably one of the funnest concerts I'd ever been to. <laughs> well, like it was so much fun. It was like 98 degrees, boys to men, and New Kids on the Block. <laughs> and it was just like, I was screaming like I was that 13 year old girl. <laughs> Who could not wait to see them. Yeah. (laughs) So that's my fun story. So there is a country that I'm not going to... Martinis? Who runs uh, the chubbier the better. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) I have found my people. (laughs) They actually send brides to fat camp. Nice. But not to get skinny, to get fat. Yes. So they uh, go... Brides go on extreme... Like here, brides would go on extreme diets to lose weight for their wedding day. And there they do the exact opposite. They go to fat camps where they're forced to eat more and gain fat. The chubbier, the soon-to-be wife, the better. It's a sign of wealth. And also, the men consider bigger wife to be sexier. Hello, gentlemen. <laughs> now, now I know where Elise is going on her next vacation. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, hello, boys. <laughs> We're just going to wear this veil. Oh, never mind then. <laughs> I don't do well in areas where I have to repress my... No, no, no. I just mean like a oh, okay. a wedding veil. Got it. <laughs> so you look very regal, the very Got bride-like. 
<laughs> in Greece, the groomsmen uh, give a full shave to the groom on the day of his wedding. Full shave? Yeah. Back crack and sack as well? No, no, like a face shave. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> that would be a very different tradition. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the brides have to go get the Brazilian done. That is true. But again, your, your maid of honor is probably not waxing that for you. True. <laughs> so, um, on the day of the wedding, it's normal for the groom to go for a nice clean shave from his barber. However, in Greece, it's not done professional by professional barbers. It's done by the groomsmen. <laughs> So, yes, the male wedding party get together and shave the husbands-to-be. As a bride, you better hope that those guys have steady hands or you're gonna, yeah. or your husband's going to have, like... And the drinking starts after the shave. <laughs> yes, or he's going to have, like, lots of little bits of toilet to paper. his face, yeah. Uh, in Fiji, so not all weird traditions happen on the day of the wedding. Some start earlier, like when you ask your partner to marry you. In Fiji, the man is obliged to present his future father-in-law with a whale's tooth. Most family with boys keep these sacred gifts for when the time comes for their sons to propose to their future bride. Nothing says I love you like a sperm whale tooth. I know that's what I want in my ring. In Kenya, they spit on the bride. Ugh. In Masia culture, probably butchered that, in Kenya, weddings are not exactly seen as celebrations of love. You're not allowed to choose whom you spend your life the rest of your life with. It's arranged marriages. One week prior to the wedding, a meeting is arranged between the families to discuss and agree on what the groom's family will exchange for his soon-to-be bride. On the wedding day, the woman will have her head shaved and rubbed with lamb's fat and oil. The father then proceeds to bless the couple by spitting on his daughter's head and breasts for good luck and fortune. So you're probably getting a couple of cows for the bride. And she's getting a loogie. Yeah. Got it. Uh, Russia. Buying out the bride. So those who say Russians don't have a sense of humor obviously miss this. So they do have some pretty fun pre-wedding traditions. Before the wedding, the bride's wedding party will meet the groom at the door when he comes to pick his bride up and give him a list of tasks he needs to complete. This could be a number of things that he needs to pass each one to be able to proceed. He also may have to pay a ransom. And often his first offer will buy him an alternative bride it's usually one of the groomsmen dressed up in a wedding dress. <laughs> so, I think I've seen this on my big fat American gypsy wedding. Maybe. Yeah. So the guy has a bunch of tasks and then he has to pay the ransom for the bride. So the first offering will get him a dude dressed as a bride. Right. Second offering, maybe another woman. <laughs> if I were, I would be like, let's, let's make this uh, yeah. beneficial for everybody. <laughs> How many people can I dress up like a bride? Yeah. <laughs> a dog in a wedding dress. When he offers enough, he gets his bride back. In England, you have the ribbon pulling. So uh, this does not involve tea or heading to a pub, but they have a fun wedding tradition where ribbons are placed between the layers of the wedding cake. Oh, ribbon. Yeah. I heard rubbin. No, ribbon. And I was like, I don't know where we're going with this, but I don't know if I want to get there. Got it. Ribbons between layers of the wedding cake. Yes. Before the couple cuts the cake, all the single ladies gather around the cake and pull the ribbons. The one who pulls the ribbon attached with a ring charm is said to be the one next married. So instead of throwing the bouquet, they pull ribbons out from the cake. There's a lot of traditions that like to mark us single ladies out at events. I don't like it. All single ladies. All single ladies. Exactly. We've got the bouquet toss. We've got this ribbon pulling. And now we have Beyonce. Like, just back off. (laughs) 
This one is Japan. So there's some traditions in Japan where the bride dresses all in white, not just the dress. So that's quite normal. So in the traditional Shinto ceremony, a small affair limited to just family members, the bride wears white from top to bottom, including her makeup, the hood, and her kimono. Okay. This represents purity, and their entire includes the hood to hide the, the bride's horns of jealousy about her future mother-in-law. Oh, I know who started that tradition. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> it's actually a quote from this article. Yikes. In Germany, they smash dishes. Germans are known for being very clean and tidy. However, when it comes to wedding traditions, they like to make a mess. One of their traditions is done the day or week before the wedding. All the couple's friends get together and smash porcelain plates on the ground. <laughs> porcelain is hard. It's not like a common thing anymore. So did they no. like upgrade that to just some plain old stoneware, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. The couple then has to clean up together and work together like they will in their marriage. Oh, no, no, no. But at least they have to clean it up together, and it's just, just the bride having to clean up the mess. The groom has to clean up the mess, too, with her. Okay, sure. I'm still paying someone to do it, but that's just me. Romania, they take the bride. So a couple of days before they exchange vows, the bride is taken by friends, family, or hired, actor, hired actors, and then the abductors then demand a ransom, which the groom has to pay. It's usually something silly or romantic, like a bottle of something or a funny performance, such as a dance or a song that is performed in front of the entire party. So it's mostly the soon-to-be husband just making a fool of himself. I can get behind that. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> innocuous. Like, yeah. Uh, India, they steal shoes. Some parts of India, it is a tradition for the groom to remove his shoes before walking down, the, down to the altar. And when this happens, the shoe game is on. The bride's side of the family has a mission to steal the shoes, while the groom's side of the family's mission is to protect them from getting stolen. <laughs> so, like, an all-out capture-the-flag-type <laughs> game breaks out in the middle of the ceremony. The ceremony? Like, nice. before the... I guess. But then, if the bride's family is successful in stealing the shoes, the groom is forced to pay a ransom to get his shoes back. Mm. There's a lot of Pain ransoms. Yeah. This seems to be a very common theme. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In South Korea, they beat the groom's feet. Ooh. On the day of the wedding, the guests tie the groom's feet together and take turns beating his feet with sticks or dried fish. This is supposed to be fun and not cruel, and it is supposed to make sure that the soon-to-be husband does not disappoint on his wedding night. I'd be, like... I have a very low tolerance for pain, so I'd be in bed, like, complaining and moaning and groaning about how much my feet hurt. But also, it's so he doesn't disappoint his wife in bed on their wedding night. But He's doing that? it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> if you're worried about the feet in that, you are either have some clear foot, foot fetish issues as an entire country, because this is, like, a phenomenon that's common, apparently. Wow, you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. In China, they do pre-wedding crying in some parts of China. <laughs> in China, in some parts of China, one month before the wedding, it is tradition that the bride must purposely cry for one hour a day. <laughs> Three weeks before the wedding, the mother of the bride joins this daily cry. Two weeks before prior, the grandmother joins in, and the final week, the sisters join in. This is not meant to s signify extreme happiness, because it doesn't sound very happy to me, <laughs> but it's something about... 
um, they think that I was reading another article and I forgot to cut and paste it in. Is that it, the tears before the wedding symbolize happiness in the wedding? Okay. So your marriage will be happy if you're sad before it. Okay. I guess you're getting it all out of your system before you get married. I guess. Seems like a lot of crying. You're just like chugging water to make up for that. I know. Also, I don't know what I could do for an hour. You're supposed to cry for an hour. Like, what am I watching? The same three episodes of Doctor Who for an entire month? You would call up your friend who channels Sophia Petrillo and I would just roast you mercilessly. I'd hit every sore spot in your psyche and I could do it. <laughs> Thanks, that's disturbing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a very good person, Andy. <laughs> uh, in the US and the USA, they bury the bourbon. So in some southern states, their tradition is to bury a bottle of bourbon upside down close to the place or at the place where they choose to wed one month prior to their big day. The reason they do this is to ward off the rain on their special day. Then rain or shine, the couple then digs up the bottle at the ceremony and they drink it with their family and friends. In a white dress? No, thank you. I guess you make the husband do that. <laughs> In his, uh, I'm assuming, rented tux? No, thank you. Because who owns a tux? <laughs> I don't know if you bury it too, but then what if you bury it and then you come back and it's gone? <laughs> like, is that like a really bad omen? It has to be. <laughs> uh, Canada, the silly sock dance. Have you ever heard of this? No. So apparently some places, Quebec, in Quebec, French Canadians have a fun and quirky wedding tradition. On the wedding day, the bride and groom's older unmarried siblings perform a funny dance while wearing silly, colorful high socks. The guests then throw money at the dancers whilst they perform, and this money is donated to the happy couple for their future. We do something similar-ish, but it's like a high-stakes play-for-money uh, game of uh, pass the married couple around. So, like, you're on the dance floor, you have to pay to get to dance with them. Huh. And it can be as quick as, like, as soon as I put my hand on you, the next person is paid and I lose the, my chance dancing with you. And whoever's holding the bride or the groom at when the music stops gets a 50-50 split of the money with the, the couple. And it's nice. supposed to be their honeymoon fund. I mean, our family, we just, like, give them the whole, like, pot. Yeah. And it, it, it pays for nice parts of honeymoons. <laughs> In uh, Spain, they cut the groom's tie. Okay. So, in certain parts of Spain, it is tradition to grab the groom at some point, point during the reception, surround him by all his groomsmen who are all holding scissors, and then everybody gets to snip a little bit of his tie off. They cut the tie into little pieces and then auction them off to the rest of the wedding guests. Those who are lucky to receive a piece will receive good luck from there on in. Hmm. And then, I guess, the money goes to the bride and groom. Yeah. So... What happens if the bride and groom end up divorced? Is that tie still lucky? Also, as I was telling Dad about this one. He's like, what if you, like, I hope you didn't buy a really expensive tie. That too. Or rents, like the whole, like, rent to tax. I was like, maybe you buy, like, get an ugly tie for just the yes. reception? Yes, and as soon as you hear, like, the schnick of, like, scissors coming out, you're, like, taking off the good one and putting on the... Yeah. yeah. Or after the dinner, you're just like, I'm just going to swap yeah. <laughs> my $100 tie out. I don't know how expensive ties are not me either in mexico they have the lasso uh on the day of the bride and groom's wedding they have 
After they have spoken their vows and agree to spend their lives with each other, with each other, their friends and family lassoed them together with a bedazzled rope. This rope tied into a figure eight shape to symbolize eternity and wrapped around them. Aww. <laughs> That's actually kind of sweet. <laughs> so I guess... Maybe that's where the uh, definition of tying the knot comes to. So they there's a similar tradition in Southeast Asia. I want to say Thailand, where they're tied together at the uh, altar, hmm. and I think the Scots do it too. Yeah, so similar. They they are at the altar, and then they get yeah. That's pretty cool, though. At least like it's a bedazzled rope, and yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to symbolize your love for eternity. In South Africa, they carry fire. So. South Africa has an adorable wedding tradition where the parents of the bride and groom-to-be bring fire from their own fireplaces over to the newlyweds' house. These flames are used to light a fire in the bride and groom's home, symbolizing bringing the union of both of their children's childhood homes together and starting a new life in their new home. That's cute. Yeah, it's actually really sweet. Yeah. Poland got the money dance. I think some other places do this too. Uh, during the Polish wedding, guests buy dances. Yeah, that's with it. The yeah. bride during the reception and add this money to a string that can be then wrapped around the couple. The money then goes towards the newlyweds' honeymoon bank or used for them to enjoy whilst they're away. So similar that's tradition. It. Yeah. Uh, Australian wedding tradition: the Unity Bowl. The Unity Bowl tradition involves all the guests getting stones from before the ceremony holding them while they walk down the aisle. Afterwards, all the guests place the stones in a bowl that the couple can keep as a decorative piece to always remember all those who supported them on their magical day. That's actually kind of sweet, too. It sounds like somebody who had a lot of stones on their property and needed to get rid of them. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you don't do that a tradition uh, when you have children at the wedding. That is true. (laughs) That can get hurled. Yep. So, henna, as we know, um, tradition in places in India. Before an Indian wedding, it is traditional for the bride to gather with her best friends and sit for a couple of hours while they get painted on with beautiful henna tattoos. The bride usually does not wear any other jewelry, as it is not necessary with all the intricate and beautiful art pieces on the bride's body. That Mm -hmm. lasts for about two weeks and looks amazing. I think of my Indian friends who got married. They did it up with a lot of jewelry. It looked good, but yeah. Also, I've heard that the um, the henna artist is supposed to put the groom's name somewhere in the artwork, and then he's supposed to find it on the wedding night. Hmm, I will have to ask, because I know someone who's actually doing yes. that. There you go. In Sweden, they do the kissing feast. This is a tradition that on their wedding day, every time the bride gets up and leaves the room, all the single women line up and kiss the groom, and vice versa when the groom leaves the room. So every time the groom goes to pee, oh all the single guys line up to kiss the bride. <laughs> and every time the bride goes to pee, all the single ladies line up to kiss the groom. Okay. <laughs> That's a really good way of passing around the cold and flu, but... Uh. <laughs> I'm assuming not everybody's doing it on the lips. There's a lot of... Alcohol is flowing. You can't make any promises. That is true. If you've always been secretly in love with the bride, this is your time. Here's to- your shot. Yeah. <laughs> In Italy, they throw confetti, but not just normal confetti. It's homemade confetti made from sweets like candied almonds. Hmm. The guests are given uh, some of this confetti, and after the bride and groom say their vows and tie the knot, the guests throw the sugary goodness at them. Although I can't imagine how much fun being pelted with almonds is. I assume they'd be ground up, but... 
no, no, they're like Full candied almonds. almonds. So because Ooh. of this, and also getting chucked sweets, like how sticky that would be, they have switched to paper in the last. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, so in Czechoslovakia, they do uh, they tie getting married with fertility. So weddings are seen as the stepping stone to having children. And for that reason, all the guests bless the newlyweds in different ways with that in mind. Before the ceremony, an infant is placed on the bed of the soon-to-be-wed couple as a sign to help fertility. Sounds creepy. After they have tied the knot, the guests throw peas, rice, or lentils to pro- at them to promote fertility. Hmm. Okay. Again, I'm not sure how much I like being have peas hurled at me. I assume I'm assuming they're dry. They're dry. <laughs> Not like just canned and green beans. Or <laughs> 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 frozen. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody like you you come to like one of us go to a traditional Czechoslovakian wedding right. in Czechoslovakia, they're like, you need to bring peas and we're like show up with like our green giant cans like this stuff. You sure? Kinda goopy, but I don't know. <laughs> Does that sound right to me? Just takes one ignorant yeah. tourist to be like, what? And the last one is in uh, some parts of the Cong- of Congo. Condoleezza nuptials are not about love. They're serious affairs that take place after two families have negotiated the bride's price and, and exchanged most commonly for livestock. Smiling during the ceremony might be misconstrued as not taking this event seriously, so they tend to not smile. Well, I don't know if I would be smiling either if... Uh, Someone sold me for a cow. But then this is, like, very serious business in some of these countries. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan was telling me he had a discussion with some of the uh, guys he works with about different wedding traditions. I don't know how it came up. And they're like, no, no, they, they like, seriously sit down, the two dads, and negotiate a price for the bride in cows. Mm-hmm. But it's like, as, and he's like, well, as the bride, wouldn't you feel, like, kind of annoyed if you only got two cows? Yeah. Like, your sister got four, yeah. or, like, your best friend got three, but you were only worth two? Like, you start asking a lot of questions at that point. <laughs> Either that, you're, like, your you're dad, are you not a good negotiator? Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, that's my story of weird wedding traditions. So, uh, congratulations to uh, Andrew and his wife. They're getting married on the Labor Day long weekend. Nice. So. For my story. Oh, yay. But I have to move. Okay. My ass is asleep, but this chair is really squeaky. Do you want to switch chairs? No, because that's what's too. So yeah, it's all good. Okay. So, during my Golden Girls story, we talked about uh, the AIDS panic of the 80s and passing. Uh, and I was catching up with, and that's why we drink, and they were talking about how there was a murder panic in the 80s as well. And it made me think about a bunch of other quote-unquote panics that North American culture went through in that decade. Uh, so that's what I'm looking at today. This is all the different cool panics we experienced. So get out your fanny packs, your banana bangs, and your parachute pants, because for the next 20 minutes, it's the 80s again, and we're all going to panic. Awesome. Yeah. So all the various panics I'm going to talk about fall under one general heading, and that is a moral panic. And that term is pretty self-explanatory, but Wikipedia has to earn its keep somehow, and defines the phenomenon as, quote, a feeling of fear spread amongst a large number of people that some evil threatens the well-being of society. The Dictionary of Sociology defines a moral panic as, quote, the process of arousing social concern over an issue, usually the work of moral entrepreneurs and the mass media. So moral panics have a long and fulsome history. 
Uh, you can think back to your ancient history and the practice of scapegoating. Your village would literally cast all their sins onto a goat and then stone it to death. Moral panic. Uh, the ladies of Salem. I was just going to say, witch trials! Yep. <laughs> Uh, in Western society, more recent ones include the fear of rock and roll from the 60s, increases in crime and video games, which happened in the 70s, and the sex offenders panic of the 90s. But the 80s was particularly rife with them, and I don't think it's a coincidence that that was also the era of the 24-hour news cycle beginning, Reaganism, and the boomer generation really coming into its own. In his seminal work, Folk Devils and Moral Panics, Stephen, no, Stanley Cohen has this to say about the phenomenon, quote, Societies appear to be subject every now and then to periods of moral panic. A condition, episode, person, or group of persons emerges to become defined as a threat to social values and interests. Its nature is presented in a stylized and stereotypical fashion by the mass media. The moral barricades are mannered the moral barricades are manned by editors, bishops, politicians, and other right-thinking people. Socially accredited experts pronounce their diagnoses and solutions. Ways of coping are evolved or more often resorted to. The condition then disappears, submerges, or deteriorates and becomes more visible. So, the Nancy Grace of it all. <laughs> She's one of those quote-unquote moral arbiters. Mm. But let's talk about the panic that inspired this story, and that was the AIDS panic. So on June 5, 1981, the Centers for Disease Control released its first report on acquired immune deficiency syndrome, known more commonly as AIDS. Initially, patients with the condition were misdiagnosed as having either pneumonia or a rare form of cancer, and the cases were observed in gay men from New York and California. Those studying the cases agreed that it was likely... Uh, those studying the cases agreed that it was likely other cases had gone misdiagnosed. Uh, this was like an electromagnetic pulse going off in the medical community. No one was sure what had happened, but it forced a lot of people to reevaluate their assumptions and beliefs, and it confused the hell out of everyone. By the mid-80s, thanks in no small part to the news media, everyone knew about AIDS, but lay people didn't understand the condition. Um, I think in hindsight, though, some of the events of the AIDS panic from the 80s may seem irrational and dumb, but there also wasn't a lot of truth being put out in the news. What was being put out in the news was terrifying. So we look back on it now as like foolish mortals of the 80s. But yeah, and this, we can see similar trends happening still to this day, right? Like, yeah, there's still that it's, it's how the panic happened that can happen at any point. Yeah. So... Uh, for example, uh, the following story appeared in Time Magazine in September 1985. Uh, and the story quoted this. There are 946,000 children attending New York City schools, and only one of them, an unidentified second grader enrolled at an undisclosed school, is known to suffer from acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, the dreaded disease known as AIDS. But the parents of children at PS63 in Queens, one of the school's 622 elementary schools, were not taking any chances last week. As the school opened its doors for the fall term, 944 of its 1,100 students stayed home. So one child out of almost a million, yeah. unknown who, where, or how, has this condition, and almost 1,000 children are kept from one school. Yet yeah, anti-vaxxers, yeah. thing. Yeah. 
Sorry. Let's continue. Uh, State Assemblyman Frederick Schmidt didn't help the situation in September 85 because he stood outside of PS 63 yelling, quote, There is no medical authority who can say with absolute authority that AIDS cannot be transmitted in schools. What about somebody sneezing in the classroom? What about the water fountain? What about kids who get into a fight with a bloody nose? They don't know, end quote. In fact, most medical professionals even then knew that casual contact wasn't going to spread the HIV virus, which is what leads to AIDS, but the news media wasn't helping spread that piece of fact. In addition, government policy was that the term, quote, bodily fluids be used to describe the infection methods, which didn't help calm the situation by clarifying just what bodily fluids was involved with transmission. According to a poll published in December 1986 by the Los Angeles Times, 50% of adults surveyed supported quarantining AIDS patients, 48% would approve of identity cards for those who tested positive uh, for the antibodies to the virus that caused AIDS, and 15% tattooed favor and 15% favored tattooing AIDS victims. So a walking talking holocaust for AIDS victims, because that's what they needed. One Boston area TV station manager told Time magazine at the time, quote, the problem with AIDS is really two epidemics, the real health epidemic and the epidemic of the mind. So the New York Times blamed anti-STD campaigners, medical researchers and religious moralists for the panic. But they weren't exactly guilt-free either, because in the same article where they placed that blame, they also wrote, quote, There is no clear evidence that AIDS in the United States has yet spread beyond the known risk groups, notably homosexuals and drug addicts. There is some reason to suppose it will stay confined to these groups for the foreseeable future. With so many experts dramatizing the the epidemic, it's little wonder that those who depend on their advice are coming to believe that AIDS is already as rampant as influenza. So yes, HIV, which I said is the precursor to AIDS, started in the gay community, but quickly spread from there because sexuality is fluid and it is not a binary equation. So New York Times, not right. (laughs) So we have this life-ending condition tied up with sexuality, and this was something that religious moralists could get on board with, and boy did they ever. Given that children were being ostracized for carrying the syndrome, which in those cases they were usually acquired through blood transfusion, uh, a lot of hemophiliacs in the early days of AIDS, ended up with the the condition. Uh, So it should be no surprise that even today, those who have it, uh, who also happen to be gay, are extremely vulnerable to attack. For about half of 1982, AIDS was known in the medical community as the following derogatory name, which was GRID, and that stood for Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. Doctors would put this on a piece of paper for six months of one year, which was far too long. Yes. Uh, A less official term that became attached to the syndrome during the 80s panic was the gay plague, because humans are terrible. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. But as we know, and as Blanche told Rose on the Golden Girls, anyone can contract it, and it has nothing to do with your sexuality or who you are as a person. It's just one of those medical conditions. While HIV and AIDS is more widely understood today, it is... And it is no longer uh, a death sentence that it once was. There are still prejudices surrounding the condition, but nowhere near as bad as the extent we saw in the 80s as education actually started to spread the truth about the condition. So from one horribly depressing topic to another, I would now like to give you a tour through the child abuse panic of the 80s. (laughs) 
before the 80s. Going back to the AIDS panic, mm -hmm. my favorite musical is Rent, mm -hmm. um, which is all looking at um, AIDS, HIV, that sort of bloom of it, because um, Jonathan Larson, who wrote, it was sort of like from his point of view of he watched a lot of his friends die. Yeah. Gay, straight, drug using, not. He just watched a bunch of friends die of this disease and felt like he needed to write about it. Yep. Also, someone told him that he couldn't have a musical that had a rock ballad, that had gospel, that had all of these things. Opera, he managed to pull it off with Rent, <laughs> and it was one of those game changers. But it was around this whole backdrop of two things. Uh, gent gentrification of areas of New York, mm -hmm. um, Alphabet City, where they took place, um, and the AIDS panic. Right. And that death sentence that it, it was. And one of the main characters, Mark, who is HIV free, talks about how he's the only one who's going to survive. He's the only one who's going to live. He's going to have to watch all of his friends die of this horrible disease because a number of them had it. And now we look back on that and goes like, okay, maybe rent doesn't date all that well. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you when I see it in October. Um, because it is so different. Yeah. So on to uh, the fun times that was the child abuse panic of the 80s. Good Lord. <laughs> so you remember my good buddy, Stanley Cohen, who wrote Folk Devils and Moral Panic? Yeah. Uh, so in the 80s, or sorry, in the intro to the third edition of that book, he explained why child abuse became a moral panic during that decade. He said, quote, in the mid-1980s, a, a succession of highly publicized child deaths under more, quote, ordinary circumstances led to a, a very different type of panic into the familiar criminal triangle that is child, the innocent victim, adults, the evil perpetrator, and bystander, shocked but passive, appears the social worker trying to be rescuer but somehow ending up being blamed for the whole mess. Social workers and social service professionals were middle-class folk devils either gullible whips of either gullible wimps or else stormtroopers of the nanny state either uncaring cold-hearted bureaucrats for not intervening in time to protect the victim or else overzealous do-gooding meddlers for intervening groundlessly and invading privacy so that's the decade where the social worker really enters into the the criminal justice system i would like to stress before i start the rest of the part of the rest of this part of my story, that social workers are not bad people. They are not doing bad jobs. They are human beings doing their best in difficult situations that are generally highly charged with emotion, and they are concerned with the well-being of children. Mistakes happen. It is what it is. For every horror story, there's yes. countless good stories. The system is taxed. It was then. It still is now. Yeah. Now, one of the worst moments in social history, social one of the worst moments in social work's history seems to have happened in Cleveland in the spring of 1987 when they appear to have inadvertently touched off a moral panic that reached pandemic proportions very quickly. So between April and June of that year, 120 children between the ages of six and nine were diagnosed as having been sexually abused by family members. In June, a story appeared in the local paper where parents claimed their children had been taken from them following accusations made against those parents by two pediatricians at a local hospital. Of course, the parents denied the allegations. The news story was the spark needed to light off the situation, and the entire thing became a topic of conversation locally, then nationally, and then it moved into politics, and it even led to a judicial review. At the end of the day, though, 
uh, with the social workers, police, pediatricians, doctors, lawyers, parents, and politicians all pointed fingers, the actual truth of the, of the matter is still hotly contested and debated, and no one really knows what the entire truth was. But because they can try track it back to two pediatricians at one hospital, I think they probably are the ones who took out the matches and started Lit the Tinder. Yeah. What we do know is that the Cleveland case was at least partly a response to the McMartin preschool incident of 1983. Does that name sound familiar to you? Vaguely. Yeah, I think it'll, you'll clue into the story. So in July of 1983, Mother Judy Johnson called the Manhattan Beach, California Police Department to claim that her two-and-a-half-year-old son had been molested while attending the McMartin preschool. Specifically, Johnson claimed that Ray Bucky, who was 25 and the son of the preschool's owner and an aide at the school, was the one who had sexually abused the boy. Detective Jane Hogue took the call and went to interview Johnson's son, who was unable to identify Bucky from a set of photos and who had no physical signs of abuse. Remember, the boy was two and a half years old. So do you think your youngest could pick someone out of a lineup of six photos? Probably not. Not so much, no. So Hogue searched Bucky's home and confiscated evidence that included a rubber ducky, a teddy bear, a graduation robe, and some Playboy magazines. So put all this into the hopper of what Ray Bucky is as a picture. Okay. Hogue then arrested Bucky in early September 1983. So the original phone call was made in July and Hogue, uh, Bucky was arrested about two months later. So evidence was very thin on the ground, but in the words of Dr. Phil, when it comes to kids, you have to have a false positive system in place when it comes to allegations. Like, you assume that something happened until you can prove otherwise, or else you're just creating a lot more problems. The day after Bucky's arrest, Hoag's boss, Police Chief Harry Kohlmeyer, sent a letter to 200 parents who had kids that had or that were attending the McMartin Preschool and asked them to question their children to see if they were a witness or a victim to Bucky's acts. Yeah, the look on your face should have been the look on everybody's face when the police chief did that. The letter listed possible criminal acts to ask about, including, well, you know what, I'm not going to say it because there's a lot of words that Algonquin's just going to have to bleep. Yeah. Suffice it to say, he described very graphically what he was hoping slash expecting the children to tell their parents had happened to them or to someone at the school. The letter concluded, uh, also photos may have been taken of the children without their clothing and any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child is important. So seeding, like putting all this yeah. terror out there into the community, 200 parents received this letter. The letter Further said, or uh, further asked recipients to please, to quote, please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Aha! Uh -huh. 200 <laughs> families got this letter. My next bullet point is just right, period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even before social media, you're sending that out to 200 people and you're expecting them to keep their mouths shut. Yes. Your mom, your husband partner's mom, like everyone's getting a phone call with an, oh my God, this might be yeah. happening. So from there, Johnson, who was the original complainant, started adding to her story about what had happened to her son. She claimed that Peggy Bucky, who was Ray's mother and running the preschool, was involved in satanic practices. She accused Peggy of Are taking we talking about the satanic panic. Yes, that's next. Okay. She accused Peggy of taking the boy to a church where he was made to watch a baby be beheaded, 
and then was forced to drink the blood. Johnson insisted that Ray Bucky had sodomized her son while his head was in the toilet and had taken him to a car wash and locked him in the trunk. She also claimed that teachers at the school chopped up rabbits and placed, quote, some sort of star on her son's bottom. So here's the thing. Johnson was a paranoid schizophrenic making these claims that touched off this panic in the community. And ruined these people's lives. Yep. So thanks to Harry Kolkheimer's letter, a panic that had started in the community had terrified the parents and those parents were now demanding investigations and follow-up as you would. That's the responsible thing as a parent to do. The prosecutors clearly felt something wasn't right, but didn't have the ability to handle the situations themselves. So they turned the case over to Key McFarlane, who consulted for a group called the Children's Institute International. And this is a group that specialized in the treatment of abused children. Now to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So if you hand this case over to a group that helps abuse children, they're going to find abused children. We probably shouldn't be surprised that McFarlane's documentation of the case case so showed that she asked leading questions and offered rewards to the 400 children that she interviewed as part of the case. By March of 1984, 384 of those 400 students were diagnosed as having been sexually abused. Of course. This is the whole, like, here's the doll, show me where he touched you case. Yes. A Children's Institute International pediatrician, so a colleague of McFarland's, examined 150 of those children who uh, were diagnosed as having been sexually abused and found that about 80% of them showed signs of abuse, though she didn't base those findings on physical evidence, but rather on their medical histories, like the ones that McFarlane took. She was of the opinion that you always believe the victim. Which, yes, but not when the victim has been primed and loaded. And is five. And is five. (laughs) Because they're just going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Especially if you're going to give them marshmallows once you get what you want out of them. Like, how many times do I go, are you going to hit your sister again? And one of them will go, uh-huh, that's not what I want to hear, sweetie. <laughs> you shouldn't fight that. They're being honest. <laughs> you know, just like, well, then I'm not going to give you back this thing that you just hit your sister with. Uh, so, Bucky was arrested in September of 83. On March 22nd, 1984, a grand jury indicted Ray Bucky, Peggy Bucky, who was his mother, Peggy Ann Bucky, who was a sister, Virginia McMartin, who founded the preschool 30 years earlier and no longer worked there, and three other McMartin teachers for a variety of sexual abuse crimes against the children. The McMartin Seven, as they became known, were indicted for 207 charges, but prosecutors told the media that they had and were continuing to investigate 397 sexual crimes. It became a media sensation almost immediately and was widely watched and discussed. Accusations of secret tunnels and rooms came out at trial, and even though they dug up the ground around the preschool, nothing was ever found. The kids they put on the stand couldn't corroborate each other or even their own earlier statements. The oldest, I think, was 15 or 16 at the time. The youngest would have been under 10 when they put them on the stand. And the preliminary hearing alone took more than a full year, at which point even the prosecution was starting to wonder what they were actually doing. Of course. All told, the case took seven years and $15 million (laughs) to prosecute. Oh my god. The jury uh, spent two and a half months deliberating. They could not find guilt in any of the charges. So everyone but um, Ray Bucky was completely 
found not guilty. Ray Bucky's charges were dismissed because the jury couldn't, they were uh, deadlocked and they couldn't come to a final decision on Ray Bucky himself. That didn't end the story though. Of course, media sensationalism was still there, child abuse and the satanic aspect as well. So in fact, prosecutors had a second retrial, like they went back to trial, this time only looking at eight counts of crimes against just Ray Bucky. And again, the jury deadlocked and it was completely a wash. So $15 million and seven years later, seven destroyed lives. Yeah. All based off of one paranoid schizophrenic's initial complaint. And then a dumb police chief sending out 200 letters, sparking a panic with leading questions. Yeah. And then a crusading yeah. investigator. And national news media moralists and, 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 and. Court TV. Yep. What the McMartin case did was merge two of the 80s most enduring panics, that of child abuse and Satanism. Because that was the second, that was the big aspect to the McMartin case, was that they were satanic worshippers, and they were abusing the children as part of those rituals. Yep. Satanic panic. Yep. Uh, The fear of the occult and Satanism had its own legs in the zeitgeist to the age from before the 80s, though. So the roots actually go as far back as 1969 and the 70s. So in 1969, Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible was published, and that was also the year of the Manson murders, which Helter Skelter, a lot of people brought the occults and Satanism into that. And then this kind of fear of these two spooky things continued to grow throughout the 70s, thanks to pop culture faves like The Exorcist and Ouija boards becoming mass marketed, because you have to be at least eight years of old, eight years of age to open up a gate to hell. <laughs> like, But... <laughs> Growing from LeVay's original work, more satanic books were published throughout the 70s, many claiming to be by those who were practicing satanism by holding orgies and making sacrifices. Oodles of serial killers uh, the 70s used the occult as part of their mythos, like the Zodiac Killer, the Alphabet Killer, Ted Bundy, John Wade Gacy, the Hillside Stranglers, and the son of Sam himself, David Berkowitz. Along comes the 80s with the rise of the 24-hour news networks, where all threats, both national and international, feel local. Stranger Danger was everywhere. And also coming really big onto the stage at that time, televangelists. Oh, good lord. So moving into the 80s, we've got a battle being set up literally between good and evil, thanks to pop culture and the media. People started seeing Satan and the occult everywhere. So... I got a bunch of examples of where the media kind of picked up on these little stories and like blew them hugely out of proportion. So following a suicide attempt in December, 1985, the parents of the victim tried suing CBS records and Judas Priest for including subliminal messages in their music that encouraged the attempt. Luckily the judge even had the music played backwards at multiple speeds and couldn't hear anything. So dismissed the case. Uh, another example, when 16-year-old Dungeons & Dragons fan James Egbert disappeared in late 1979, the media quickly theorized that he was too absorbed in the macabre world of the role-playing game and had just disappeared into the tunnels around school. Rather, James had actually run away from home when he felt he wasn't living up to the demands of being a child prodigy and was ashamed of his sexuality, which was Aww. starting to come out at the time. And then sadly enough, he took his own life the next year. But that didn't stop the media from blaming Dungeons and Dragons for being too much close to the devil. In 1985, Procter and Gamble, the makers of Pampers Diapers, set up a 1-800 line to refute claims that the 13 stars in their logo had anything to do with Satan. They just set up a 1-800 line. Yep. 
Uh, in fact, it those stars had been part of the original packaging since the company's foundation in 1882 and represented the original 13 colonies. But an urban legend had it that the 13 stars were a not-so-secret secret mark of the devil. And with the satanic panic happening, uh, the story just exploded. That urban legend just grew. And in the oh. end, Procter & Gamble had to remove the imagery from their centuries-old branding because they just couldn't get away from it. I was going to say, I don't know. I don't remember Pampers having. Nope. They no. pulled it in the 85. In 1986, evangelist Jim Brown and Greg Hudson claimed that when you played the theme song from Mr. Ed backward, Mr. Ed the Talking Horse, it said things like, quote, the source is Satan, and, quote, someone heard this song for Satan. This then developed into the old argument that rock music was corrupting children, because apparently the theme song to Mr. Ed was like a hard rock song. And the album the song appeared on was burnt by Brown and Hudson's youth groups. Despite the discovery, Brown said he didn't think the producers of Mr. Ed were actual Satanists. Quote, we don't think they did it on purpose, he said. Well, I don't know, Andy. It sounds pretty dumb. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, there was so much acid! <laughs> In the 80s? These were church people. That's true. They were high on Jesus. They thought That's they'd found the problem and fixed it. <laughs> cocaine. Cocaine was the 80s. Yes, and lewds. Uh, in 1989, parents in North Carolina were reluctant to send their children out for Halloween candy on the heels of rumors that Satanists planned to abduct and murder them for ritual sacrifices. Again, another urban legend that spread quickly and got out of hand. So in October 89, those parents in North Carolina clocked 500 calls to local area police stations in Raleigh. Afterwards, spread that blonde boys from the ages of 2 to 5 were devil worshippers' preferred targets. Mothers indicated that they were considering denying or that they were considering dyeing their son's hair to avoid catastrophe, and police never found any evidence of this plot. Because none existed. No. It was the whole urban legend got way, way out of hand. And finally, no story about satanic panic from the 80s is complete without everyone's favorite 80s dirtbag, Geraldo Rivera. Uh, I thought I thought you were gonna go back to Jim Baker. No. <laughs> Uh, working for NBC, Rivera put together a two-hour documentary, I would like to air quote documentary at this stage, on the mission of devil worshippers and suggested that there were more than one million of them practicing in the U.S. He threw a lot of Dutch on his claim when he said, quote, the majority of them are linked in highly organized, very secretive networks. From small towns to large cities, they have attracted police and FBI attention to their satanic ritual child abuse, child pornography, and grisly satanic murders. The odds are that this is happening in your town. End quote. The doc drew 20 million viewers, and in the aftermath, NBC News stressed that it wasn't the production of the network's news division, but rather its entertainment wing. Of course. So NBC knew to distance itself. <laughs> the fact that that man is now, like, still on the air... And supposed to be a serious journalist, I think, now. Oh, but he was on Fox News, so no one takes him seriously. That is true. He was on Fox News, I forgot. <laughs> so, no one should take it seriously. No. It's Fox. So, sadly, slash gladly, I'm not too sure. I think we're becoming immune to these panics to a certain degree. Mm. Who remembers how unconcerned we all were when scary clowns started popping up on random streets a couple of years ago? That is true, but we all knew it was coming out, so... True, and to be fair, it's 2016, so it was a much scarier clown running around on television at the time. Uh, why aren't we more worried about climate change? A lot of people still have their head in the sand on that. 
uh, when are we going to see President Trash Monster be impeached? Like, why aren't these panics happening? Like, these are legit panics we have to be having and no one is having them. But you still have the whole, like, don't eat X at Halloween because there might be needles in it. Another of the 80s panic that yes, started around. that still gets trooped out every couple of years. Yep. So I think the issue now is that we're so flooded with information that raising to the level of panic is now just beyond our tiny human minds for the most part. Like, it's got to be real bad. Real, real bad. And if putting kids in cages isn't going to be it, like, how bad has it got to be? <laughs> yeah, like, you think, like, last week, the three or two weeks ago, the three mass murders, if that doesn't cause a panic of so social moral decline, right. then what will? I think it was after Sandy Hook, even Obama said, like, if it's not this, nothing will ever fix yeah. it. Like, you can't see little six-year-old children dead from a mass shooting. Like, what what's it going to take, really? So that is my story about the panics of the 80s. Oh, my God. The satanic <laughs> panic. I remember watching, um, oh, what is it? Unsolved Mysteries is on um, Amazon Prime. So you can stream, like, the entire run of it. And there was one oh story God. about boys who got so high from smoking two marijuana joints that they laid down on the uh, railroad tracks and the police legit thought it was Satanism. Like it was a satanic cult that had like gotten them high and then made them lie down on the train tracks to kill themselves. And I'm like watching it. And I'm like, this whole episode is like a little Cosmo of like the eighties panics, like yeah. the drugs, the stranger danger, the Satanism, yeah. like we're on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> it was and the most eighties thing I'd ever seen. Well, on that very up note, yeah. <laughs> I think it's time to wrap up the episode. I think it's yes. going to be a long one, eh? Uh, yes. I mean, we'll be able to cut out a bunch from the beginning of me trying to, like, search for... Your story. <laughs> my story. Uh, but hopefully we'll be coming to you from the Ottawa Podcast Festival for next week's episode. Yes. Um, but if you would like to know more about our show, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, check out our merch tab so you can pick up some of our cute merch to rep us out in the big bad worlds, or our support tab so you can come on board as a patron off our Patreon page. And if you would like to reach us in order to tell us about a rabbit hole that you like to fall down or that you want us to fall down for you on the show, email us at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, on Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast, and Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page. If you like what we're doing, give us a rate, a review, recommend us to your friends and family. Um, we love uh, when new listeners, we love getting the stats from different countries that we know nobody in. I can't tell you who's listening to us new this week. I know last week we talked about our Serbian listener. But Serbia's keeping up. So they're clearly going through the back catalog. Nice. So if it's you, reach out to us. Yeah. <laughs> By the time you catch up in a couple of weeks to this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so yeah, if you like what we're doing, just give us a recommendation. Rate us. It's important for the algorithms. Yes. And uh, our one-year anniversary is coming up shortly. Yes. So I think it's time we run another contest. Yes. So I'm springing this on Andy. We'll figure it out. We'll have yeah. videos for you in the coming weeks. About that. Yeah. We'll run something for our anniversary. Yes. But that's it for today. There's just one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.